1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing, notice this, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you have become, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of injury we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you would then flip to chapter 5, which is the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and I want to read just verse 23. As Paul brings this letter to a conclusion, he says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, look at this, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your word today. And um, we confess that we know that one day you are coming back. We don't have a timetable. We don't know all the details. We speculate about all of those things. But what we know for sure, what we confess confidently is that you are coming back and that every one of us will stand before you one day to be judged. And our prayer is that when we are judged, we will be found blameless. And that's what we're gonna talk about. How can we be found blameless before a holy God? I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help me to speak with the authority of one who preaches your word under the anointing. Lord, I ask you for that anointing again, as I pray often, not because I somehow think that I am deserving or have somehow thought that I have toiled long enough to deserve that anointing, but because I need it to rightly divide and proclaim the word of truth. So would you anoint me today and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would not only captivate the attention of everyone in this room and we would remain focused on your word, but Holy Spirit, that you would convict 
prick our hearts. Call us to a higher level, a higher plane as we walk after you. May we capture the seriousness of this moment. This is the word of life. This is the Holy Spirit wielding that word in our hearts so that you can change us and make a difference in us. So speak to us today by your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The daughter of uh, missionaries to the Congo Republic shared their story with Leith Anderson, one of the great um, church leaders of our time. And uh, the daughter of these missionaries said this as a little girl, she said she participated in a day long rally to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the coming of missionaries to that part of Africa. At the close of a long day of speeches, long day of music, there was an old, old man that stood up before the crowd and he insisted on speaking. He knew that he was going to die soon and if he didn't speak, there would be information that only he possessed. Um, and he would take that information to his grave and no one would ever hear. So he told the 100th anniversary celebration group, he remembered when missionaries came to that part of Africa. He said that when they arrived, his people thought them strange and they thought their message was dubious. And so the tribal leaders decided to test the missionaries by slowly poisoning them to death. Over a period of months and years, missionary children died one by one. And the old man said, it was as we watched how they died that we decided we wanted to live as Christians. Those who died painful, strange deaths, never knew why they were dying or what the impact of their lives and death would be. But through it all, they didn't leave. They stayed because they trusted in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful story of missionaries that said, God called us here. And we're going to be faithful, even though we don't always understand what God is doing. Today we begin a brand new series. It all comes from Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. We call it First Thessalonians. It's only five chapters. We'll spend the next eight or nine weeks kind of unpacking some of its principles. Let me begin by giving you a little, if I could, a little historical context into Thessalonica as a city. Thessalonica was the capital and the largest city of this large region, I'll show you later in a map called Macedonia. At one, it, it was the capital at one time of the second largest region in Macedonia, but in 146 BC, all four of the regions combined, and so Macedonia remained the capital, or excuse me, Thessalonica remained the capital of Macedonia. Thessalonica was evangelized, and you may, if you've read the book of Acts, you will be familiar with it. But it was evangelized by Paul and Silas on Paul's 
second of three missionary trips. If you remember the story, Paul and Silas were trying to figure out where to go and they made a bid to go in one direction and the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, I don't want you to go that way. They were forbidden to, by the Holy Spirit, to preach in Asia, but they were called in a vision to go to the area of Macedonia. Let's read that text in Acts 16. You can find it there. So passing by Mysia, they, and this is Luke writing, and he's talking about Paul and Silas, they came down to Troas, and then a vision appeared to Paul in the middle of the night. It was a man of Macedonia. He stood and he pleaded with Paul saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So after Paul had seen the vision immediately, we, Luke says, sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel there. If you wanna put the map up and I'll real quickly kind of show you the area that we're talking about. So Acts 16 says, after traveling through Mysia and Troas, this is where they received this vision saying, come to Macedonia. And so Paul and Silas left Troas and they came over here to the area of Macedonia. And this is Thessalonica, this is Berea. We'll hear about that a little bit later and they were in Philippi first. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But this is the area of uh, Macedonia that Thessalonica is the capital city of. And this is where Paul and Silas went during Paul's second missionary tour. So after ministry in Philippi, which was, I showed it to you on the map, they spent time there. And again, we'll talk about this next week. That's when the Philippian jailer who put them in stocks um, and was beating them and then there is this midnight earthquake while Paul and Silas are singing at night and they are released from the prison and the, the Philippian jailer, he and his house, his entire house are saved. But after they leave Philippi, they come and you can read that in Acts chapter 17 to Thessalonica. And there they ministered to the Jews every day in the synagogue. This would have been about A.D. 49 or A.D. 50. And now Paul, the Bible says, was ministering to the Jews in the synagogues. He did that for three Sabbaths, so about three weeks. And there were a lot of people that believed. A lot of people became Christians. They became followers of Christ. But he stirred up the Jews. They became angry, those who had rejected the message. And so they created a mob and that mob attacked a house. Again, you can read this in Acts 17, attacked the house. Uh, it was owned by a man by the name of Jason, attacked the house. They were trying to find Paul, but Paul and Silas were protected. But at night, they decided we've got to get them out of here. And so at night, Paul and Silas were then transported to Berea. And there they had success, but that same mob that was in Thessalonica followed them to Berea. So now Paul is safe. When he writes 1 Thessalonians, he is in Athens. And his mind kind of reminisces about the people at Thessalonica. He hadn't had a chance to spend much time there. A church had started, many people had come to Christ, but he wanted to know how they were doing. And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. And he says, Timothy, I want you to go and I want you to get a report for me so I can hear what is going on in Thessalonica. And so Timothy brought that report to Paul and that report encouraged him. Look in chapter three, verses one through seven. This is what I, I just said to you. We could no longer endure it. We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and we 
sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you. He's writing to the Thessalonians. We sent Timothy to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I couldn't stand it any longer, I sent Timothy to know about your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor was in vain. But now that Timothy came back, he has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also desire to see you. So he sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. And Timothy came back and said, they're doing great. They're solid. It's a church that is going very well. And so it was shortly after Timothy's report that Paul sits down and he writes 1 Thessalonians. Of course, it wasn't in chapters. It was one long letter. We put it in chapters. But he writes this letter. The congregation at Thessalonica was young, was likely very small, Paul was their founder. He's the one that started the church in Acts chapter 17. But to the Jews, Paul was a false prophet. To the Romans, he was trying to create sedition and, and, and they wanted him out of the way. But as their founder, the founder of this small young church, Paul was concerned that if they didn't get constant encouragement, they might flounder. His letter, 1 Thessalonians, is pastoral. I want you to, as we go through this the next several weeks, I want you to, and as you read 1 Thessalonians, read it as one who understands that it's a pastor writing this letter. He's concerned about this little congregation. He's worried that they're going to flounder, that they're going to stray from the faith. And he is concerned to meet the needs of his flock. Now, look at me for just a moment. I, I want to kind of set the record straight here early on. There is less theology, and some of you will be glad for that, in the book of 1 Thessalonians than in some of Paul's other letters. Theology was not his major concern. He addresses practical concerns. Now, the church at Thessalonica thought that Jesus could come back any moment. They expected his return. As a matter of fact, they, they struggled thinking maybe they had missed it. You'll read that later on in 1 Thessalonians. Maybe they had missed the return of Christ altogether. And so Paul is trying to comfort them because they were so focused on the coming of the Lord, but now persecution and trials had come and Christ hadn't. And they were beginning to worry. They were beginning to think maybe they had done something wrong. And so Paul writes this letter and he said, I want to write this letter to you so that when Jesus does come back, you'll be blameless. I want to make sure your life is aligned correctly. I'm trying to be a good pastor to you, Paul says. I want to make sure that the rough edges are smoothed off and so that your life is really ready when Christ returns. He wanted to make sure they didn't lose their focus. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts. Look, blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then the verse that I read to you at the beginning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So everybody look right here for just a moment. Over the next eight or nine weeks, we're gonna talk about being found blameless when Jesus comes back. How many think Jesus is returning? Do you think he's coming back? And how many want to be found blameless when he returns, all right? That's what this series is all about. What does it look like to be found blameless when Jesus returns? In front of you and behind me, you see all of these different things that we're going to cover in the next eight or nine weeks. But today I want to talk about being a faithful witness. One of the aspects of being blameless when Christ returns is that we are like those missionaries, faithful to what God has called us to do. We are faithful witnesses. So what does a faithful witness look like? Three things. I'm going to share them with you. They're all going to be really pretty simple and pretty quick. Number one, a faithful witness lives their life with a hopeful anticipation. Let me just break down these first two or three verses for you. Let me read them to you first. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all. Making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing, and again, I want you to notice these phrases, remembering without ceasing your work of faith your labor of love and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So this letter, 1 Thessalonians, opens up like any other letter in antiquity would have opened up. This was a, a, a common way, grace to you and peace. And writes, he calls out the people he's writing and he names writing to, and he names the people that are actually writing this letter. And notice he says, Paul and Silvanus. Silvanus is actually Silas that he had traveled with and Timothy. Silas was Paul's partner. Remember, after he and Barnabas split up, he and Barnabas went on the first trip, but they had a little problem, a little uh, human resources issue over whether or not Mark got to travel with them on the second go around. And Paul didn't want Mark and Barnabas did want Mark. And so the Bible says the contention between Paul and Barnabas was so great, they split. And so Paul got a new partner and his new partner was Silas. And so Silas is writing this letter with Paul and Timothy. And they begin with this common greeting, grace. And I'm not going to get bogged down in the weeds here, but I do want to make a few comments. Grace is one of the great Christian words. Say man, if you're thankful for God's grace. Are you thankful for his grace? Grace is the Greek word charis. It is a derivative of the Greek word kar, which means joy. And, and so grace means that which is given to us that brings joy. And the understanding of the Christian is that there is nothing that brings joy more than the act of God in Jesus Christ at the cross. That's what brings us grace. That's what brings us joy is what Jesus did for us on the cross. So he says, grace to you 
and peace, which just means wholeness, comes from the Hebrew word shalom. It means wellness of one's being. And so Paul writes to them and he says, I want you to have joy. I want you to have grace, joy in your relationship with Christ. I want you to have wholeness of being. And then notice that Paul's gratitude for the Thessalonians was great. Because apparently they were not like the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had some real problem members. They had some that had been disaffected some that were getting kicked out, some that were immoral. But that wasn't the case with the church at Thessalonica. He says, you bring me joy. So he was excited to write this letter. This was a church that meant a lot to him. And then he notes three specific qualities for which he gives thanks. First of all, their faith. Or literally, he said, I, I, I rejoice when I think about your work of faith or your work produced by faith. Listen, faith is not just some kind of, and James would say this in the book of James, faith isn't just some kind of feeling that we have or some kind of confession we make. Faith is busy. Faith, say amen if you believe that. Faith does something. If you have faith, James said, if you have faith and you're not doing anything, then your faith, because it is void of works, is dead. And Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, You've got busy faith. I, I like your faith. I rejoice in your faith because it is at work. And then secondly, your labor of love or your labor prompted by love. Let me pause for just a moment here and talk about the word love. The word love here is the Greek word agape. And it's contrasted to the other word that's used often for love, and that is the Greek word eros. And... Um, Agape love was not used in much writing outside of Christian literature. Paul says, I want to thank you for your agape, your labor of agape. The word labor is kapas, and it means toil and effort. I want to thank you for your effort of agape love. Let me show you the difference between agape and eros love, and this is so important. Eros love which you see show up occasionally, is a love of the worthy. In other words, somebody who is worthy of my love, I will love. And it's a love that seeks to possess. Just look at that top one first. Eris is a love of the worthy, and it seeks to possess. In other words, I'm gonna love you because you're worthy, because I like you, because I think you're special, and because I want to possess you. I wanna be in charge of you. I wanna control your life. Agape love is a love of the unworthy and a love that seeks to give, not possess. You see, God's love loves, how many are glad God's love loves the unworthy, all right? It loves the unworthy and it doesn't try to possess us and control us, it wants to give to us. And this kind of love, this kind of love forces a decision. When I come into contact with that kind of love, God so loved the world. When I come into contact with that kind of love, it forces a decision. When God loves this way, we either have to accept that love or reject that love. When we accept that love, we have eternal life. When we reject that kind of love, it brings condemnation. Look at what John 3.16 says. We, we read the, the first verse. We don't read 17 and 18 often. God so agape the world. That is, he loved the unworthy 
not to control us, but to give himself to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn us, but he sent, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed. You see, agape love, God's kind of love, the love that he wants us to have, is not a love that tries to control. It's not a love that only loves the worthy. It's a love that finds all the unworthy and says, I don't want to control, I want to give to you. Condemnation comes only if I reject that. It forces me to make a decision. And so he said, I, I want to rejoice in your busy faith. I want to rejoice in your labor of agape and then finally, in your hope, patience of hope or endurance that is inspired by hope. The word for hope is the Greek word hupomone, H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E is the transliteration. And that kind of hope is not passive. It's not a passive sufferer that just says, oh, well, whatever happens is going to happen Instead, it is, a, it is an active endurance that knows there's something ahead. There's a hope ahead. It is active endurance that says, I'm going to endure because I know that something is ahead. And for the child of God, that something ahead is the return of Christ. It's hope that is inspired by the anticipation of the return of Jesus. So a faithful witness lives their lives in hopeful anticipation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna love, I'm gonna be busy, but I'm gonna expect that one day Jesus is gonna come back. Rachel Sobel, in a, an article in the US News and World Report called The Mysteries of Hope and Healing, wrote this, when Jerome Groupman diagnosed patients with serious diseases, the Harvard Medical School professor discovered that all of them were looking for a sense of genuine hope. And indeed, that hope was as important to them as anything he might prescribe as a physician. After writing a book called The Anatomy of Hope, Groupman was asked for his definition, and he replied this, basically, I think hope is the ability to see a path to the future. You are facing dire circumstances and you need to know everything that's blocking or threatening you. And then you see a path or a potential path to get where you want to be. Once you see that, there's a tremendous emotional uplift that occurs. The doctor confessed, I think hope has been, is, and always will be the heart of medicine and healing. We could not live without hope. Even with all the medical technology available to us now, we still come back to this profound human need to believe that there's a possibility to reach a future that is better than the one that is in the present. Do you understand? That's what underlies young people being hopeless. That's what underlies people taking their lives because they think there is no hope. A faithful witness lives with a hopeful anticipation that no matter what I'm facing today, there is something better for me. Jesus is coming back. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly, a faithful witness lives with an assurance 
that is rooted in the gospel. Now, I, I could maybe ruffle a feather or two here um, when I talk about, again, because it's in the text, election, but, and that's not Republican-Democrat election, by the way. That would really ruffle a feather. I'm not going to do that. But, but look at what Paul writes for Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So first of all, a faithful witness lives with a hopeful anticipation, but they also live with an assurance. How many, let me just ask you, how many are sure of your salvation? Raise your hand if you're sure. We can live with that assurance. A faithful witness lives with the assurance of their salvation because their assurance is not rooted in how good they are but it's rooted in the gospel. Let me talk about election in the gospel for just a moment. I'm just gonna say it. Well, I have to say it because it's on the screen. So this is what I wrote and this is how I feel. The notion that God arbitrarily chooses or elects who will and will not be saved, in my opinion, is completely contrary to the gospel. Now there is a, a strong, probably maybe half or more of the church universal believes that God elects, that God chooses, and they pick up on that word election. And, and, and so if you were elected, great for you. If you happen not to be elected, it doesn't matter what you do because you're not in, because he didn't elect you. I think that notion is contrary to biblical truth. Let me explain why. Paul writes this in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Not just the elect, not just some that God arbitrarily chose, but for everyone believes who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, watch this, the just shall live by faith. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone, what does it say? To everyone who believes. In other words, my belief is involved. It's not just God electing me. I, somebody smile or do something. You're looking at me weird. My belief is involved. The faith of the person is required. I have to believe the just live by faith. It is not some kind of arbitrary divine choice. I'm not ashamed, Paul said, the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes because the just shall live by faith. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes into righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made into salvation. For whoever, verse 13, whoever, whoever. I mean, I, I, I don't know what that says in the Greek, but I'm guessing it says whoever, all right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what is the gospel? The gospel is clear. First Corinthians 15, Paul said, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which by, by which you stand, by which you are also saved. 
if you hold fast the word that I preach to you, not if you're elect, but if you continue to walk by faith, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I received. Here's the gospel that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. You see, the gospel, which is literally good news, is God's act in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus died for our sins. He was buried according to the scriptures. He was raised according. That is the gospel. That's the good news. God's act in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that God elected to do his work of service. He is the elect one. He became sin for us. Salvation comes when I believe. When I place my faith in God's activity in Jesus Christ, not because of God's arbitrary choice of me or someone else, salvation comes when I place my faith in God's work and his act in Jesus Christ. All right? Their election was, they were assured of their election because it was rooted not in arbitrary choice or their goodness, it was rooted in the gospel. It was rooted in the assurance that Jesus really did die. He really was buried and he really did come out of the tomb. If I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in my heart, God raised him from the dead, I'll be saved. Their election, they were confident of their election because it was rooted not in anything other than the act of God in Jesus Christ, the gospel. The Thessalonians were assured of their election, their salvation according to the gospel. And that's why they had such assurance. Let me give you the third point. This is really, uh, when I say I wanna hang out here, I'm not gonna hang out long, but this is the point I really wanted to get to. A faithful witness lives their life in such a manner that their life preaches the gospel. That their life preaches the gospel. Paul says this, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, I want you to look at this line, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God is, look at that, look, it has gone out so that we don't even need to say anything. Look at the rest of this. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the world to come. Here's what Paul's saying. We don't even have to say anything. We don't have to tell people about your great experience because your life shows it. We, we, don't, have to, we don't have to write letters to everybody and say, hey, that person's saved. Or that church is really doing it. We don't, have to, we don't have to say anything because your life shows it. It sounds it forth. All the Macedonian and Achaia, he said, and not just Macedonian and Achaia, the whole world is hearing it because your life is preaching it. You see, they had followed Paul and Silas and Timothy well. And so like their mentors, they had done so despite having experienced persecution. Paul and Silas and Timothy knew persecution. Now the Thessalonians were being persecuted. Martin Luther said, if Christ wore a crown of thorns, why should his followers expect only a crown of roses? And sometimes we think we are um, immune from suffering. But Paul said, you all that followed me 
suffer just like I have suffered. We may have affliction in this world, but we have a joy the world cannot know. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. I want you to listen really closely and hear this statement. We must, in the church, grow past the unscriptural belief that suffering and affliction is without purpose. We have been taught and brainwashed to think that suffering and pain and affliction is not the will of God and has no purpose. That is unscriptural, and we must grow beyond that very carnal, unscriptural belief. We may have physical trials. We may have family or relational trials. It is not accidental. God has a purpose in those trials. Paul says this, and this is, I want to spend the, really the balance of my time driving this point home. He said, you have become examples. You followed us so well that you have become examples. The word is typos. You can see it like type, typos. Typos originally meant the mark that came when you would strike something or there was a blow. Like, um, as a matter of fact, in John 20, when Jesus said to Thomas, who didn't believe, remember this, um, and, and Thomas responded and said, unless I see the print in your hand, unless I see the typos in your hand, that's what it originally meant. It kind of evolved and it became an image formed by the blow, not just the mark, but an image that would be formed by a blow. The, the, the impression that was left by a seal or a die. In Acts 7.13, when Stephen is talking about the images that Israel built, the, the idols, he used the word typos. It was something that was made and seen. And then it came to mean, listen, the word typos came to mean a pattern. Hebrews 8, 5, Moses was told to make a tabernacle according to the typos, the pattern in heaven. That's the meaning here. Look at me, get this. I'm going to make you think for just a moment. The Thessalonians had become patterns, models of what it looked like to be Christians in a hostile world. They'd become like a pattern or a mold. When you get a cookie cutter and um, you're making cookies, you are expecting every one of those cookies to look the same because you have a cookie cutter. Paul said, you all have become patterns, typos, for what it means to be believers in a hostile world. Richard Charles Linsky, a German Lutheran pastor of the 19th and 20th century, said it is the Christ-like reflection in us today that induces others to follow Christ. What high praise he gave to that Thessalonian church. How would you like Paul to send us a letter to glad tidings and say, you all have become models for what it means to be Christians in a hostile world. That's what he said. No other church did Paul call a pattern. This whole church, Thessalonica, was modeling how to handle trials and difficulties. Now, let me just 
Forget PowerPoint for a moment. Look right here. Glad tidings. That's who I'm preaching to today, all right? I'm not preaching to Dunkirk, Hartford City, Muncie North, or Old Town Hill, or Union Chapel. I'm preaching to glad tidings here today. We must become a pattern, a typos for how to be Christians in a hostile world. And can I tell you, I rejoice in, as I know most of you do, in the good news that came down from the Supreme Court this week. But listen to me, but listen to me, we have to model, we have to typos what it looks like to be Christians in a world that does not agree with our stance. We don't fight with them on Facebook. And I say that, and I remind myself, trust me, you have no idea how many things I deleted this week, by the way, but I deleted them all, all right? We don't fight with them on Facebook. We stand godly, we stand kind, we forgive, we embrace, and we better have faith that is busy to just rejoice in a decision that nine justices made and sit back like we have somehow won a battle is absolutely contrary to the word of God. We've got to young, we've got to love young women who have made mistakes. We've got to love young families. We have to encourage adoption and fostering. We have got to be the people of God. We have got to model, be a pattern of what it looks like to be Christians in a hostile world. Say amen if you believe that. They were a... They were a pattern to all of Macedonia and all of Achaia. From them, he said, the word of the Lord, this is the phrase he uses, has sounded forth. That word can be used of a resounding gong. You know how you hit a gong and it, it, it goes for a while. Or that word could be used for rolling thunder. You hear it for miles. Paul said, you have been such patterns, such typos of, of what Christians in a hostile world are supposed to look like that, that it, is, it is like rolling thunder. People have heard far and wide about the power of Christ. And I just simply ask you this question, do our lives do that? If we just sit in here and rejoice on Sunday because we got our way on one law, trust me, there's going to be a lot of laws we're not going to get our way on. There already have been. We live in a hostile world and it will probably remain hostile until Jesus comes, but we've got to be godly. We're, we're, not, we're not called to fight the lost. We're called to win the lost. You understand that? We're not, we're not called to get the last word on the lost. We're called to love them and win them to Jesus. You're not going to argue them into the kingdom. You're going to show them the love. You're going to become typos, models, examples. Remember the story I opened with? They poisoned the missionaries because they weren't sure about him. But they watched how faithful they were. Even when their children died, they were faithful. And the gospel revolutionized that part of Africa because there were people that were faithful witnesses. Their witness was one of true conversion. They turned from idols and they turned to the living God. It's not just turning away from something, it's turning to the living God and then they waited expectantly. 
Greek word is anameno. It means to wait with patience and trust for the return of the one who would deliver them from the wrath to come. I want you to stand with me if you would please. Pastor Clayton, it doesn't matter how much time you give me, I use it all every, every week, all right? I had lots of time to preach and I used every last minute of it. Um, if we want to be found blameless when he comes, we must be faithful through affliction, hopefully anticipating Christ's coming and fully surrendered to his plan. Let me just end with this story. Dan uh, McConchie, Vice President of Government Affairs at Americans United for Life, was riding his motorcycle through a suburban intersection when a car came into his lane and he pushed him into an oncoming traffic. When he awakened two weeks later, he was in a level one trauma center and he was a mess. Six broken ribs, deflated left lung, broken clavicle, broken shoulder blade, five broken vertebrae. Worst of all, amidst all of the broken bones, he had a spinal cord injury that left him a paraplegic. The neurosurgeon told his wife it would be a miracle if he ever walked again. Eight years later, Dan McConchie is still in a wheelchair. What I learned, Dan said, is that life isn't for our comfort. Instead, the purpose of this life is that we become conformed into the image of Christ. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen when everything is unicorns and rainbows. Instead, it happens when life is tough, when we are forced to rely upon God through prayer, prayer just to make it through the day. That's when he's most at work in our lives, molding us into what he designed us to be. And he ends by saying this, my prayers are different today than they were eight years ago. Back then I looked at God like Santa Claus, ask him to send nice things my way. Now I have one prayer that I pray more than any other. Lord, may I be able to say at the end of today that I was faithful. When he comes, will you be found blameless? Will you be a faithful witness? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant. Bow your heads with me, Father. I thank you for your word today. Lord, I want to be a model. I want to be an example. I want to be a pattern for what it means to live faithfully in a hostile world. I want to stand with a bold witness, but with the humility and the genuineness of the kindness of Christ. I want to exude with the goodness of God that leads people to repentance, not hammering them with wanting my way. Help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses. In this day, I pray in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed for just a moment, anyone in this room that would say, Pastor Kevin, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm not serving him. My heart is not right, but I want to know him. I want to follow him. I want to give my life to him today. Is there anyone in this room just by an upraised hand would say, would you remember me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. Anyone in this place, anyone in this room. Can I ask this question? And with your head still bowed, how many would say, okay, week number one, when he returns, I want to be found a faithful witness how many would raise your hand with me and say that's the desire of my heart can we close with this worship course that really says that very thing we're going to take a stand we're going to stand in him let's worship